This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we get down to this week's episode, just to let you know that on Friday we've got an episode uh, where I sit down and talk to Amanda Iannucci, the creator of basically anything good comedy-wise for the last 20, maybe 30 years. Uh, the thick of it and Alan Partridge and Veep and uh, his two new projects, David Copperfield and Avenue 5. So uh, subscribe to the podcast if you don't miss that on Friday. But uh, let's get down to uh, this week. It's a sad episode, uh, dear listeners, because it's the last episode where we'll be joined by Henry Zeffman in the studio, at least. The Times political correspondent is off to America. Uh, So um, he's obviously, now that British politics is nowhere near exciting enough, he's decided to go where it's still completely insane. Uh, So we'll talk to him about America. Rachel Sylvester is here to talk about the government's obsession with moving things to the north and whether or not they will actually happen. And Hugo Rifkin will cast an eye over the Labour Party and why they hate everyone else almost as much as they seem to hate themselves. So uh, let's kick off. This, for the last time in the studio at least, is Henry Zeffman. Donald Trump's impeachment trial begins this week, reviving difficult questions about whether he tried to coerce Ukraine's president into investigating Joe Biden, a Democratic rival. But the mathematics of the Senate make it highly unlikely that the president will be removed from office. So does the trial matter? Well, Henry, you're the one who's been reading Wikipedia for the last (laughs) fortnight. Does it matter? Yes, of course it does. I mean, Donald Trump is only the third president to be... Sorry, I say of course it does, combating the straw man which I created for myself. (laughs) But you like these things to end in in a question. Yes, it does. I mean, Donald Trump is only the third president to be impeached. He is, barring some totally unforeseen development, not going to be convicted. And this is something that uh, lots of people don't uh, over this side of the Atlantic reasonably, quite reasonably don't understand, which is that impeachment is not the act of being removed from office. The, the House of Representatives, the, the lower house uh, of uh, the United States legislature, has already impeached Donald Trump uh, on two articles. They're effectively two charges. Uh, it is the Senate, the 100-member upper chamber, which is now trying Donald Trump over whether he should be removed from office on the basis of that impeachment. Now, for him to be removed from office, you need 67 of the 100 senators to vote in favour of doing so. That's not going to happen. There's already a slimish majority of Republicans in the Senate. But you'd need, I think, 20 Republicans to vote to remove him from office for that to happen. And partisanship being what it is, uh, the presidential election approaching, and the fact that 
Donald Trump has pretty effectively cast the Republican Party in his own image, despite very few of them or very few senators initially wanting him to be their presidential nominee back in 2016, means that they are mobilising pretty effectively in his defence. What impact would it have? And part of the reason why you're going so soon uh, to America is because the Iowa caucus is happening imminently. You're, you're basically landing in Washington and going straight to Iowa. That's right. And then obviously we've got the presidential election in November. What impact will this have on the presidential election? Because on the one hand, it's not the best backdrop to anyone uh, launching a presidential campaign. On the other, it, it is totally in the sort of space that Donald Trump likes to be. It's him versus the Washington establishment. It precisely the moment the Democratic candidates want to be achieving liftoff, the news is all going to be dominated by the impeachment. Well, there's there's a practical impact. You mentioned Iowa. The Iowa caucus is on Monday, I think, February the 3rd. But as you say, I mean, the last week of or last couple of weeks of campaigning in Iowa is going to be while this trial is taking place. Now, several of the leading contenders are serving senators. So have to go back to Washington and act as jurors, where weirdly they have to basically sit in silence at this trial. But they can't be out in Iowa doing shoe leather campaigning. So that affects Bernie Sanders, who's a senator from Vermont, Elizabeth Warren, a senator from Massachusetts, less well known, although she got half of a New York Times endorsement this week, Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota. By contrast, Joe Biden, who obviously, by dint of this impeachment investigation being to do with Donald Trump trying to get the Ukrainian, allegedly trying to get the Ukrainian president to investigate him, is bound up with this impeachment trial. But because he's not a serving senator, although he was a senator for four decades, he can go off in Iowa and say, look, you know, and and every day in various different towns and cities of of the state say, look, this just shows uh, how scared the president is of my candidacy. So you better better vote for me. Uh, so there's that sort of practical impact. Because it sort of shores up Donald Trump and with his base. People think, oh, my goodness, it's the liberal elite coming for our person. Uh, it, seems to, it seems that that is what lots of people around Donald Trump uh, and lots of Republicans think, which is, yeah, absolutely. It's a very good opportunity to tell the people who voted Obama 2008 and 2012 and then Trump 2016, basically the people who won Donald Trump, the presidential election in Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio. Look, this is the contempt that the Washington establishment, the swamp, as Donald Trump likes to call it, has for you, has for the choice that you made in 2016. And, you know, to to really clear out or drain the swamp, as Donald Trump awfully likes to call it, you know, you're going to have to vote for me again. It's, it's very well timed for for Donald Trump, and the you know. Facts as the Democrats almost don't their matter, new... do they? It's a it's an well, emotional. The, the facts are connection. messy as well. I yeah. mean, uh, or not necessarily messy, but but it is a bit complicated, right? You can't reel off the charge sheet in one or two snappy sentences, even for people who've been paying lots of attention. Uh, and you know that that absolutely probably helps play into the you know there are the there's the Washington elite over there you know in a part of the country you don't visit doing a doing a complicated thing but you know effectively the Republicans might say trying to thwart what you what you told them in November 2016. Are you gripped by this, Hugo? Well, kind of. I mean, it's Trump is sort of right in that it's it's not really it's not really about what he's done. I was I was talking about this a different context, but I was talking about this last week on on the news quiz, saying the situation it's a bit like with Trump. It's a bit like if you go to your doctor and you get there and your doctor's a Labrador and you go and speak to the person in charge of the surgery and you go, "That's not right. That's obviously a problem." And the person in charge of the surgery says, "What's he actually done wrong?" And it's kind of like <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of Trump's situation. You know, they've focused on this on this actual thing, the Biden Ukraine stuff. That's not really why he's being impeached. That's not really why they want to get rid of him. And so Trump can stand there 
and say, you know, it's not it's not actually this that they're fighting me for. It's everything I am and represent. And while I agree with Which the people brackets, who want to get rid of yeah, to the voters, yeah, yeah. While, I, while I agree with them for wanting to get rid of everything he is and represents, um, he is he is right to say that's really what's that going on. And, 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 yeah, yeah. and it, it may well be that the, quite a lot of his base will not like that. Actually, in the same way that on a obviously on a smaller scale, but the sort of various sort of Remainer campaigns and taking the government to court and all that mm. Supreme Court legal challenges. We're never really about the thing. It's always about the yeah. the bigger message and whose side you're on. And, and I think I think they were a bit more openly about that, though. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it was a bit more openly. This is a with Brexit. It was a bit more openly. This is a war of attrition. We will fight this at every turn. We will use everything at our at, at our disposal. Whereas with with Trump, I mean, they they are going through the the motions of. It's, it's, I mean, it's weird when you look at it. They're going through the motions of trying to nail him on this charge, despite a this charge not really being being the issue, and b knowing that it's not going to work. So it's this sort of ritualized, <laughs> ritualized thing. Yeah. And Henry, how are you? How have you prepared for your new life uh, in Washington by buying a new coat? Uh, because I looked at the weather <laughs> forecast for Des Moines, Iowa. By figuring uh, out where Iowa is. Uh, well, figure, figuring out where Iowa is why, as well. Why don't you tell us where Iowa is? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> well, cru- crucially, the pilot of my flight from, from DC to Des Moines, hopefully, knows where Iowa is. But, but you've got uh, a new coat because you've got a the new forecast. coat. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is sensationally freezing in Iowa. I mean, we're talking minus 16 degrees at the moment, which is nice. I look forward to attempting to drive through that. It's much warmer in New Hampshire, where I fly to after Iowa. Uh, it's about minus seven degrees at the moment. Basically, you, you touched down in Washington and you're uh, thinking, well, great, I'm a Washington correspondent for the Times. And then you've got to spend no time in Washington. But this is why I was so keen to get out there so quickly. So so the, the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primaries, the first two in the nation, have this uh, historical outsized role in shaping the dynamics of the of the presidential primary, even though in the actual eventual reckoning they have far fewer delegates or or a far smaller proportional say than the much bigger, much more populated states. But, you know, it is quite possible. I mean, Iowa at the moment is incredibly tight. Uh, Race, uh, you know, any of Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden might win there. Uh, New Hampshire, likewise, uh, although obviously that will be hugely affected by who comes out of comes storming out of Iowa with momentum. And, you know, this race could go on ages like the 2008 primary did between uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, um, briefly at the start, John Edwards. Or, you know, it's not it's not likely, but it's just about possible that Joe Biden will win the Iowa caucus, win the New Hampshire primary and and pretty quickly he will become Everyone else the nominee yeah, yeah. um although I, i'm not sure bernie sanders would drop out for a long time even if it looks inevitable it, it's a fascinating time to be going out there and i'm i'm very excited and so can i ask you the, for your prediction who will get the nomination <laughs> and can they beat Tom uh, i mean i really really shouldn't make a prediction firstly this far out secondly on the radio and thirdly from the uk so ask me again in a few weeks once i've actually spent some time there talking to people prediction with a very 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 high margin of error uh, joe biden uh, and can he beat trump he can clip that up i'm not sure he will <laughs> clip that up and put that in the filing cabinet time will tell as the journalistic <laughs> cliche has it uh, well i look forward to getting you on the phone to say uh, in, in the next few weeks when you c- confirm that you did always predict that elizabeth warren was going to win by a, by a huge uh, landslide uh, let's bring politics um back slightly close to home and turn to the labor party this is hugo rifkin laura pidcock the recently deposed Labour MP for North West Durham says that the best thing about no longer being an MP is that she doesn't need to be in the same room as Tories. 
During the election, Richard Bergen seemed to feel it necessary to remind voters that Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson, was a Tory. These days, Labour hates the other side almost as much as it hates itself, which raises the question, can you convert voters if you keep telling them that they're horrible? It has been extraordinary, Hugo, watching, I mean, even some of the, the, the maiden speeches of new Labour MPs still railing about Bullingdon boys and Old Etonians mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff, as if they didn't notice what happened on December the 12th, that the country hasn't fallen for that stuff. Yes, I mean, it's, it's not a new thing. It's a cultural thing. You know, Labour MPs will often say, as a matter of pride, I was brought up to hate Tories. You know, and it's it's, it's, it's a thing. And, and, and I mean, it, it's sort of, it's delicate. It's not just the MPs. I was reading, there was a, the LSE did a survey during the last election where they found that 68% of Labour voters feel disgust towards Conservative voters. It's a lot, 68%. On the other side, I think it was only some, it was 40-something percent of Conservative voters felt it towards Labour voters. So there is this, there is a culture on the left of, yeah, of, of disgust for the other side. It goes right, it's in it's the red flag, you know, well, well, um, well, a coward's flinch and traitor's sneer, or perhaps the other way around, whatever it is. But it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it, we're the good guys, they're not the good guys. Yeah, so it really, yeah. it goes right, right, right down to the bone. And it's a very hard thing for them to break out of. I really remember when I first arrived uh, to cover Parliament, I think in 2005, uh, an MP explained it to me, is basically, Tories think Labour MPs are wrong and Labour MPs think Tories are evil. Yes. And that's the that's the difference. Is and then you can't argue with you can argue with wrong, but you can't argue with evil. You know, that sort of I mean it's it's not just a personality thing, it's slightly the dynamics of the argument. You know, I am um, a couple of years ago I did a sort of double interview at Cheltenham with with uh, Jess Phillips and Jacob Rees Mogg. And because they'd done a couple of TV shows together and they were kind of doing a bit of a double act. It was very difficult to extract. I mean, it was very easy to, to, to ask Jess Phillips, how can you be friends with this man? And it was quite difficult for her to answer the question, simply on the basis of her own her own politics and beliefs. She, she just had to say, because I am, you know. So there, there's something about the, 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 the sort of the, um, the logical implications of having left-wing politics versus right-wing politics that make that tricky as well. But it's still a problem. There's actually, I think, a really interesting division within the Labour Party, almost as much as left or right, is whether you're sort of open to other people. So Tony Blair famously had the big tent and his whole aim was to try and get Tories into his big tent, whereas Corbyn is a teeny-weeny one-man or two-man tent and anyone who's outside is evil. (laughs) And it's it's that sense of disapproving of the voters. It's almost, you know, eat your greens as a puritanical... If the sort of big divide in politics is roundheads versus cavaliers, Corbyn is the ultimate roundhead, puritanical, slightly disapproving. And, of course, Boris Johnson is the cavalier, swashbuckling, fun-loving. And it's that sense of, on the hard left in particular, disapproving of Conservatives, but also the voters in general. So the aspiration to go on holiday, have a car, which actually someone like Jess Phillips doesn't disapprove of she gets that people want a better life aspiration isn't a dirty word whereas for the left there's almost a it's fetishization of poverty well, it's a very easy thing a very natural thing to disapprove of people who are to the right of you the reason why corbyn disapproves of everybody is because everybody's to the right <laughs> of you. but i mean yes, you know but, I mean, Blair but, writes are almost but, I mean, as bad as tories well, sure. fact, aren't they but yeah. i mean if, if you ask yourself who the people are that you really really disapprove of in politics I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're different, but I often find I'm much more forgiving with, to people I radically disagree with on the left than I am to people I radically disagree with on the right. We also have this kind of sort of threshold that goes, that goes rightwards. And I think a, lot of the, a problem that a lot of people have in Labour is that it's really quite a long way from everybody else. And um, also, I think that also explains the anti-Semitism problem, yeah. because they, 
they were so sure that they were morally superior to everyone else. They couldn't see that they they might actually have a blind spot mm-hmm. over this. The key point, though, Henry, is that Laura Pidcock lost her seat. That going around telling everyone how awful they are and they're not morally superior and all that, in the end, her own constituents, who she'd represented to some extent for two years, <laughs> decided they didn't want her to do it. They didn't want to be in a room with her. Yeah, and there was a really fascinating piece by her successor, the Conservative successor, Richard Holden, on Conservative Home a couple of weeks ago, talking about how they basically had no data and the Labour Party were behaving, campaigning incredibly bullishly. And and yet he was sort of door to door starting to think, hang on, people really might vote Tory here. I mean, I just think there's a strange assumption in the Labour leadership race that is Keir Starmer or is Rebecca Long-Bailey or is Lisa Nandy or is Jess Phillips or is Emily Thornberry best placed to drag Labour back to somewhere about where they were in 2017 at the next general election. But it is also entirely possible that things are going to get worse. Labour are closer to losing lots of seats uh, that are a bit like North West Durham, Laura Pidcock's seat, or a bit like Blythe Valley or Rother Valley, uh, than they are to winning back lots of the seats that they need to get anywhere close to going in government. I mean, it is entirely possible. Uh, you know, it is just as possible that Labour are 15 points clear in the polls by Christmas. But it is quite possible that Doncaster Central and Doncaster North will look at Don Valley in 2024 and perhaps see investment piled into there or the separate question and think, OK, gosh, we, we ought to follow them. You know, we are going to... You know, complete the set, as it were, complete the region and go Tory. Um, and if I were Labour, I'd be absolutely petrified that it's not that North West Durham will revert to the mean at the next general election and its, its sort of brief Tory flirtation will be over, but that seats a lot like it will follow on. You hear Labour MPs and candidates talking about our people, mm-hmm. who are actually the people who voted Conservative at the yeah. election. Those people yeah. in those red wall seats that Henry's talking about, they're not Labour people. And there are other people like them who aren't Labour people. And they're back to Hugo's point. They've got to win over new people or mm-hmm. different people. They can't survive on their people they think are their people because they're not. It is mad. That I don't. As far as I know, and I've been paying more attention to them probably most normal people, nobody in the Labour leadership contest has yet said, I'm the person best placed to get Tory voters to vote for the Labour Party. Just, just come close. She has. She's come yeah. pretty close. But, I mean, but even doing that would, would, would signal that you are a toxic Tory who shouldn't be part of it. You know, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's a high totally. risk. It's a mad thing. that The well, idea of saying I'm best placed to win the election is seen as a high risk Well, strategy. and also they actually don't, even, some of them don't talk about the Labour governments the, of Blair and Brown yeah. as Labour governments. They say it's all one era of Thatcherism, don't they? Well, Which was, is extraordinary. I mean, there was, there was a period around about 2016, 2017 where they were, in fact, they were talking openly about the place where the new votes come from is from non-voters they're saying we yes. don't you know we, yeah, we don't yeah, need yeah. To, we don't need to take the center and the right we will get all these non-voters from the left they'd forgotten that the problem with non-voters is that they don't vote <laughs> uh, that is a, a, it's a, a small sort of fundamental yeah, yeah, yeah. fundamental thing but yeah i mean and and this sort of this sort of sense of entitlement about the labor vote these are our people i got that a bit during the election when i was up in up in glasgow actually with the labor candidates up there it was all about how do we get our people to vote for us how do we get our people back you know the sort of the shipyards of govern and all that kind of thing but their people don't believe they're their people anymore mm. you know their people are all voting smp there was um, some really um striking polling that you gave us last week where they'd asked people who'd switch directly from labor to toy what they thought about the par- different parties and they felt that the labor party had moved away from them mm. and the toy party had come to towards them and it, it, so they, they no longer consider themselves Labour voters yeah. to come home to them and the other thing I wrote about was the the big risk 
for the Labour Party. And Ed Miliband tried this a bit. Jeremy Corbyn clearly tried it. And there's a risk of the new leader tries it. Is they think, oh, well, if we just sit tight, everyone will realise the Tories are evil. Mm-hmm. And they want to eat your babies and put everyone in a workhouse and set fire to the NHS. And if they don't do that, as Henry was saying, we could get to the next election. And if the Tories turn out not to be as evil as mm. the hard left think, people will vote for them again. That said, and I know this contradicts what I just said earlier, but I um, I don't think it's... I mean, if you had said, if we'd said in this room three months ago that all it would take for the hard left control of Labour to go is one leadership election, you know, is just for Jeremy Corbyn to lose an election and a contest to start. I, mean, I think people would have been surprised. I have been surprised by, and, and this is on the basis that Keir Starmer looks like a very strong favourite to win this leadership election. Uh, you know, and yes, he's not a Blairite in camouflage. Yes, he, he does to some extent sign up to elements of the Corbyn policy platform. But the ease with which that appears to be happening. The fact that the Labour left have put up Rebecca Long-Bailey, who just is not very good uh, as their candidate. Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of him, clearly had qualities that inspired a mass movement, at least within a part of Britain's politics, which we've not seen for some time. Rebecca Long-Bailey does not have whatever those qualities are. And just the ease with which, after the hard left took control of the Labour Party in a way which they never had, people controlled it to the 80s, but that's not true because their grip of the party institutions is much stronger. And yet all it took was one leadership election and a former director of public prosecutions is, is going to win. Is that not just because they're terrible at politics? You know, I mean, if they'd put up, if they'd been able to persuade John McDonnell to stand... The situation could be. I mean, there's all kinds of people. Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I was just surprised that um, John McDonnell, within two days, was like, "Oh no, I'm retiring." To yeah, the I mean, I mean, there's the, there's this horrendous parallel world in which, say, Chris Williamson's still in the party and he's running for the leadership, and there's a horrifying percentage of people who are prepared to vote for him. So, well, I think that's true. I think that's partly because the the Corbynite left of Labour itself is. Is kind of too nasty to vote for Rebecca Long Bailey, you know. But it's also I mean, there it's, is also it's also by implication it's a slight confirmation that it was a cult. Yeah. Going back to your tent, mm. uh, it was essentially a wigwam a in which Jeremy Corbyn stood in the middle. And if you wigwam. take him out, the whole thing collapses. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it, it's it's still a cult just without a messiah. Yeah, you and know, if you don't have um, one, yeah, yeah. so it wasn't that they didn't they didn't really even agree necessarily agree on all the details or whatever. It was just you know if people are attacking our man, we'll flock round mm. him, and if you take the man out, then. It turns yep. out they don't really have any shared platform. The election wasn't entirely about Brexit, so the left's wrong about that, but Brexit was a factor, and that isn't going to be a factor at the next election. So it's a much more complicated sort of electoral dynamic than a simple swing between Labour and Tory. And actually, if, you, if the Labour Party tried to make the election about the sort of economics and social policy, that is the turf that Boris Johnson's now got to move on to mm. and deliver on mm. a massive list of promises and yeah. demands from his, his new intake uh, from the north of England. Next, let's move on. We'll talk about how the Tories are going to appeal to the new north of England. <laughs> we'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly. Joining the studio by Henry Zeffman, Hugo Wifkin, and this is Rachel Sylvester. Boris Johnson is considering moving the House of Lords to York in an attempt to prove his commitment to the North. It's an unrealistic gimmick. Perhaps the Prime Minister will become the first victim of the Downing Street plan to punish ministers who focus on PR stunts rather than serious policy delivery. <laughs> um, or is it really Boris Johnson? Is it there's, there's someone, and we don't know who it is, of course, but there is someone who's floated the idea of moving officials, civil servants, uh, out of London, moving the Conservative HQ out of London and now the House of Lords. Well, in the Lords yesterday, the former head of the Navy suggested maybe they could all go on a cruise around the coastline <laughs> of Britain. That, that cheered them up a bit after, compared to the idea of moving to I imagine if you, took a, if you drew a Venn diagram of the sort of people who go on a cruise <laughs> and the sort of people who are in the House of Lords, there's probably a good overlap. But, I mean, if you think about this in practical terms, it's going to cost an absolute fortune. There isn't a building there. They're talking about, they've identified a site, so there'd have to be a purpose built Built building for the new House of Lords. Everyone, all, the ministers who have to go and address the Lords every day, what are they going to do? They're going to go whizzing up and down on trains every day, or are they going to have offices in York? You know, you're going to have a sort of parallel Whitehall, Whitehall up there. What about the Queen for the Queen's speech? What about, you know, Black Rod knocking Tom, on comic, the door? Comic, the Queen go to York. <laughs> but there, was a, there was a brilliant piece on uh, Conservative Home where someone talked about how, yeah, the Gilded Coach sort of crawling at your big horse jaw, <laughs> setting off, you but, know, you know several got, days in advance. Poor Black Rod walking up the motorway. But all these um, Brexiteers have been furious about the EU, so, you know, the European Parliament shifting between Brussels and Strasbourg, which is a ridiculous waste of money. But the amount of money that would be wasted on this shunting around between pillar to post. But actually, more importantly, it's incredibly patronising to say, <laughs> you know, it's as if Boris Johnson is saying, people in the north, you know, we're going to send you the unelected peers, you know, poshos in ermine, just to keep you happy, pat on the head. Actually, people want real power. People want their trains sorted, their buses sorted, their schools sorted, their housing sorted. They don't want a gimmick, the House of Lords moving to York. Can we agree that this story is basically absolute drivel? <laughs> and I'm all for it. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a great plan. I mean, I mean, I, it, it's one of these things where I sort of approach this with an element of sort of like irony, and then I actually can't decide what I even think. But I'm going to go with it anyway. People do want things like sort of you know services, schools, buses, etc. Sorted out. The way you get that is shifting a load of powerful people up there. Um, don't well, the don't, don't have wait, wait, I haven't finished. Not don't don't stop at the House of Lords. Commons too. Shift it all up there. Yes. Get it, you know, well, I mean, it, there is a serious it's not, it's not it's not very far away. York. It takes you about twice as long as it does to get to Croydon. You know, it's not. It's it's Probably kind of. Time, it's it's right. Mm-hmm. It's right there. However, Pl- plenty of plenty of countries have the the various legis- leg- I can't say that word. Various houses in different places. <laughs> um, well, why why the hell not? Because 
we already have a group of people who spend half the week spread across the country finding out what people want. They just happen to go to London. Spread across the country, they're just going to be. The whole point of having elected MP, like it's not that the North didn't used to have MPs before. No, but they were just ignored before. But yeah, but it's but it's not. It's not. It's. I mean, look again. I'm. I'm sort of. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this like I've actually thought about it, but um, it's not about them going to York and finding out more about York, right? It's them going to York and all the services around them building up. You will get lobbyists in York. You will get people who are in and around York who wish to lobby in Parliament some way. And instead of having to make a trip down to down to London to see, you know, Laura, well, not Laura Pidcock anymore, but whoever, um, they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll go. Thank you. They'll go and see a peer. It just changes the whole dynamic. I mean, look, Boris Johnson's answer to literally everything is build something massive to literally every question but that's what's but so on this, I think might be on the, is on the, the I mean I, I, I like Hugo or like Hugo today I'm, I like I'm genuinely quite oh. sympathetic no, 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 well that too <laughs> uh, but, but, but like you I am, I am sympathetic to the idea of moving parliament and creating a new political capital somewhere in the country but it, there's something ridiculous about you know clearly in this brainstorming meeting going oh god no we can't move the house of commons there no no we'd have to go but we can move the law yes. well that's the other um, thing everyone gets to move apart from Boris Johnson exactly. and Cummings. but but also, it is revealing of why Boris Johnson might not be able to capitalise on this blue wave, which is all the... Dis- I mean, I don't know where the metaphor is. The blue wall, whatever it is. Blue rings. Uh, the blue... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is reviving some of these places which the Tories' political future now revolves around reviving. Uh, requires careful, meticulous, thought-through investment rather than bung a load of money there for some big project. Mm. Though there is definitely for room for that. To sit in. Right. I mean, exactly. bung a load of money for some big project that benefits the local people is fine. But yeah. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stick on this. You look at you look at the the BBC when they moved so much to Salford. Everyone sneers at it. Media people particularly sneer at it. It's completely worked. You know, uh, you look at you look at the, the the difference in the sort of city Manchester is now to Manchester 20 years ago. You know, it re- these sort of things really do have an effect. Like, granted, the Lords might not be the right choice. Mm. Maybe what you don't, you really, really don't need is lots of geriatric people. You know, sort of having a having a you know t- taking over all the all the prime York city centre city centre property or whatever. But then maybe maybe they wouldn't go, and it would become a sort of a younger body because because people or your kind of sort of um your sort of privileged London peers would go. I'm not going to spend I'm not going to spend a week up in York. I've got my I've got my legal practice to look after. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't do it. Um, so it just it just it changes the whole dynamic of our politics and I'm not against it You'd also have I have a decided pra- in just the if, space, it <laughs> if it is the laws though it, you reminded me of another point mm. that it, you'd end up with a totally professional political class because actually the point of the laws is that they're not professional politicians they have other jobs and some of those jo- at the moment isn't, most isn't of those jobs are in isn't, isn't well, the question whether or not there is always. a point to the laws and whether we should have well, the laws at all rather question. than yeah Embarking on a multi-billion-pound scheme to build them a new house somewhere else. The other thing move is, to the Jorvik Viking Centre. I was speaking to a, a, one of the new Tory MPs from the North uh, after this story came out, um, and they said it's it's very even. It's telling that they chose York. York is the place where you go on a school trip to look at a posh old cathedral yeah. and those yeah. streets that look a bit like it's lovely York. Harry Potter. Exactly. Yeah, but there were. That's not the sort of new Tory heartland, you know, basically the towns which are really struggling, which you need to try and mm-hmm. do something about where you can't find a bus and you can't, you know, mm-hmm. your shops all shut. The, the stuff that the government should be addressing. Giving York another th- landmark is not necessarily the, the priority. Well, the Tories stopped even going to Blackpool for the conference, didn't they? 
maybe they should move it there. Steady. There you go. But that would be exact. But the Tories still have mm. their party conferences in Manchester and Birmingham, mm. um, and yet they're considering cutting off the uh, the plan to to improve well services to Birmingham. And then, and then uh, beyond, because it's, it's a bit complicated. Not everyone likes it. But that's the other thing: is that if we thought Brexit was bad, the national debate about where to put this new building, whether Commons or Lords, would just go on and on and on and on. How many referendums would we have to have before we settled on? It's a headline that they wanted to try and look like they were thinking about quotes the north rather than actually doing anything. And, <laughs> and then the, we're rather stupidly talking about it you because wait, it benefits them. You, but... wait, you wait until six years from now, we're going to going up to visit Matt in the York Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how, how phony this period of government has been since the, as in phony war, as in, you know, what has Boris Johnson done since he got his majority? And I, I know he's waiting for a Brexit day and this big reshuffle. He but, was on holiday you know, for a while. Well, sure, and, and not necessarily unreasonably. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly quibble at that. He won an 80-seat majority... Tony Blair has spoken often about how he regrets mm. not striking while the iron was hot at the start of New Labour's first term. And I appreciate we're a matter of days rather than years into it. But, you know, if this is mm. what they're coming out with just mm. a few weeks in, it's not at all obvious then that there is a grand plan sitting in a drawer somewhere. Well, the big the thing that set alarm bells ringing for me was the suggestion that he was going to hold some regional cabinets, which was the sort of Gordon Brown's dying days idea. David Cameron did loads of them, didn't he? Did, he did, but it was, yeah. it, it was copying Gordon yeah. Brown and Gordon Brown did it as a sort of I don't know what else to do, because uh, I remember I'd worked in the British regional values, lobby then, we British all values, had them yeah. exactly, we all had them, we all got, thanked them for agreeing to do this and then we all FOI'd the cost of bringing the <laughs> uh, cabinet to Exeter and said what a total waste of time and money it was. But there is a sort of serious boring point that actually those uh, what happens to the areas who voted Tory because of Brexit largely will depend on the Brexit deal that uh, Boris Johnson gets and the government's economic analysis suggests that those areas are actually the most at risk mm-hmm. from a hard Brexit which is a kind of Brexit that Boris Johnson seems to be determined to pursue so the you know st- the yeah. danger is it's all for a House of Lords in York is not going to make up for that if the factories close and the economy goes down in those areas and that's going to be the crucial thing is mm. As we get into this premiership and uh, we overcome the excitement of the Labour leadership contest and attention turns back to, well, what has the government done in its first six months? Why is the economy not doing as well as some have expected? What is going to be the impact of this trade deal? And uh, that's going to be far more significant than some daft ideas that someone who may or may not have been Dominic Cummings has floated in the papers to keep everyone quiet for a little bit. Anyway, we'll come back to all that. As, as Hugo says, When uh, once a week we have to get on a train to <laughs> all of us, as they do, as lots of five live presenters do, get on the train to go to mm-hmm. Manchester to do their regional output and then come back to London again or, or go to York and do it there. Uh, my huge thanks to Hugo Rifkin, Rachel Svester, and special thanks to Henry Zeffman for all of his appearances on the podcast. We look forward to speaking to you uh, with your big coat on. Uh, it's some um, windswept freezing part of America. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Acast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen, so you don't miss that episode with Armando Inucci on Friday and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.